a great movie, isn't it? And it's the movie where Kevin Costner mentors Kelso, and you get to... Just kidding. For those of you who don't know that joke, that's a bad joke. All right, anyway. It's a great movie. This particular scene, if you don't know the story, it's The Guardian. Um, and so Kevin Costner is like the senior expert on uh, the Coast Guard. And so he's been called in towards the end of his career to, to train and mentor the young recruits, the young cadets, into how to do what he's been doing for years. And his problem with the establishment is they're not training people well. So they're getting out on the job. They're not fully equipped to do it. And as you see throughout the movie, Kevin Costner has some non-traditional means of teaching these young men. Here's one of the best scenes in the movie. And I love this scene because of the way I think it mirrors the way Jesus teaches. So what we've done in churches over the last few hundred years is we've put people in a room, whether it's a big room or a little room, and we've pulled up a master expert. We can call him the preacher, the teacher, whatever he wants to be called. Different, different settings, we do the same thing. And then he tells everybody what to know and what to do. What to know and what to do. And then says, see you next week. And what often happens is there's a gap between what everybody's learning and what they interact or what happens in everyday life. If you were to go back and study the way Jesus led his disciples, you would find a completely different model. So Jesus shows up on the earth, and he has a ministry that lasts for roughly three and a half years, from about 30 to 33 and a half in that ballpark. And this is important because by the time Jesus reaches his mid-30s, he's already saved the world. What'd you do? All right, but anyway, in this time frame, Jesus calls some disciples, and he starts with 12 disciples, and we're very briefly into the story before he completely changes the model. Now, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 for our first text today. We're going to be kind of all over the Bible. If you want to go ahead and open to Luke chapter 9, we'll be there in just a moment. But what you need to know is in Luke chapter 9, we are, I don't even know the exact time frame. Nobody knows the exact time frame. But let's call it one year into the story because it's probably ballpark about what we're looking at. So we're roughly a year. It could be six months, could be 18 months, but we're about that timeline into the ministry. At this point, Jesus never had a formal classroom. Yes, occasionally the disciples went with him to the synagogue. Occasionally they went with him to a temple. Most of the time they were out in the field. They were at a wedding. Most of the time they were out in somebody's home doing dinner or lunch with them. And who was with them in all of these environments? The disciples. They're watching what Jesus says. They're listening to what he teaches. They're watching how he heals. And then he has a private conversation with them on the side. So what questions do you have? And this is the way that Jesus does it. It's on-the-job training. You watch how I teach. You watch how I heal. You watch how I pray. You watch how I approach the Father because I'm making you like me. Now, at churches, we have so struggled and failed to do this. We have eliminated ministry from where Jesus intended it to be, and we've made ministry about the paid. If you ever want to be blown away, go read Ephesians 4 sometimes, where Paul says God gave gifts to the churches, and the gifts he gave were the prophets, the preachers, the evangelists, the teachers, the pastors, and their job is to equip the saints for the work of the church. So my whole job description can be summarized as this, to equip you to do what Jesus does. That's my whole job description. But what we've done in America is we paid a guy, we put him on the stage or on the platform or in front of the room and say, teach us, and then we'll watch you do the work. But look at what Jesus does in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. 
One day, Jesus called together his 12 disciples, and he gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and heal all diseases. Let's just camp out before we move on. So Jesus calls them to do two very powerful things, cast out demons and heal all diseases. Who does that sound like? Jesus, a couple of you got it. You, you didn't learn this much at Sunday school, right? Your answers are always Jesus, God, love, Bible. Throw one of those out there, you're going to be right every time, all right? <laughs> this sounds like Jesus. In fact, okay, let's take a little side trip because I think I need to explain it for those of you who are newer at this and you're like weirded out, all right? Let's talk about demons and miracles for a minute, okay? Just briefly, this is like we're barely scratching the surface. There's a million other questions. I get it. This is just scratching the surface. But demons and diseases, miracles, those are both real things in the New Testament, and they're both real things today. Now, what we know from the New Testament consistently, consistently, is um, <clears throat> that when demons were driven out, when diseases were miraculously healed, they always did it to give credit to the deliverer of the message about Jesus. Here's what that means. Nobody went around simply healing. Nobody went around simply casting out demons so they could have a cool ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, people who do that are rebuked and condemned to hell. Let that one sink in. The whole point to this is when you do these things, it will gain you an audience with listening ears to be able to tell them about Jesus, which is the real need in the first place. The real need is not these things, but this is what people will get caught up on. So we deal with these things, but how do we deal with them? Well, Jesus gave them two gifts. What is it? Power and authority. All right, trick question for the day. You ready? Do you have the same power and the same authority that those men had? Some say yes, some are afraid to answer. <laughs> well, the truth is the answer is yes and the answer is no. Let me describe it quickly. Now, scholars have written entire books, but a lot of ink arguing and fighting because that's what scholars love to do. It's a conversation that needs to be had. I'm giving you the 30-second version of lots of material. Yes and no. Let's start with no. No, because Jesus actually called and commissioned a very specific group of people called the apostles... And he gave them a very specific task. Now, the disciples later became apostles, 11 of them. One of them, Judas, didn't make it. Even that, and I wish I had an extra 10 minutes because I could add it into this message. I don't. It's fascinating to me that Jesus lets Judas, who he knows is not in his heart right with him, and he lets him stay in the closest group all the way to the end. He also lets him cast out demons and heal diseases in Jesus' name. However, the difference between an apostle and you is an apostle, according to the scripture, had to do three things. They had to be in the ministry of Jesus, they had to uh, see Jesus resurrected from the dead, and they had to be commissioned by Jesus for a specific task. And these men had a very specific duty of launching the church. There is no such thing as an apostle today like these men were apostles. There is none. Now, there are people you might say have an apostolic gift. They have just a gift of leadership. Maybe men like Andy Stanley, Craig Rochelle, Bill Hybels, pick the pastor that has the big name. They just have kind of an apostolic gift. They are the leader of leaders. However, there's nobody like that today. However, yes, 
because you have the same Holy Spirit inside you. For those of you who have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Now what that means is, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So what do you have to fear? Look at what Jesus tells these men to do. Then he sent them out to tell everybody about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Again, why are those two things together? Because the one gives credence to the other. But notice what he tells them. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. What? Okay, this kind of sounds like the way I pack. And I show up on vacation, I say, hey, honey, did you grab my toothbrush? She goes, no, I thought you were getting that. I'm like, but you got all the other toiletries. She said, you were packing your stuff. So I end up without underwear, without socks, without toothpaste. And my wife's like, do you want me to start packing your stuff? I'm a man. I got this. So that's usually how it goes in my home. And I usually end up with something and Walmart gets my money again. So Jesus tells them, I want you to go and I want you to take nothing with you. This is fascinating and I want you to hang on to this. There's two great reasons why. The first great reason, the first great reason is because what we're doing is really important and it's urgent. There's no time for you to run back home, kiss your wife goodbye, tell your kids goodbye, and pack up your stuff and take care of all of your things. You need to see the urgency of this message and see it now. The other reason is because I want you to know you have everything you need already. You don't need to go back and figure out how you're going to plan this out. You don't need to go back and put all the steps in place to working it out. God's going to show up and when he does, crazy awesome stuff is going to happen. That's in the Greek. Crazy awesome. Now, here's the thing. Does your life reflect the urgency and the trust that Jesus is calling his disciples to have? Does your life reflect this idea that God can do unbelievable things with faith, with men and with women of all ages, and all education levels, and all, whatever you might call it, class, whatever your color of skin, whatever your limitation, that God can do amazing things through, yes, even you. And you don't need more stuff to get it done. You already have the Holy Spirit. Look at the last thing he says here. So, they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. So what does this mean? They actually followed through. They heard what Jesus said. They took him at his word. They believed him. They said, I'm going to go. And they went out to do exactly what he told them to do. Now, these are, as I told you, these are the disciples. I don't know if you know this. Disciple literally, literal translation is follower, follower. Disciple doesn't mean what we often think it means today. Disciple doesn't mean believer. Did you know that the Bible tells us even the demons believe in God and actually shudder at the thought of him and that they are not on his team and yet they are not saved? It is not enough to simply believe God. It is not enough to simply believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus was never intending to build an army of people who agree with him. Jesus was intending to build a community of people who lived for him, by his power, through his power. And when we do, stuff's going to happen. In fact, Bill Hull, I love it, uh, he's a pastor. He's kind of a retired pastor now. He trains pastors. He writes this. He says, the problem with the church in America is that you can become a Christian and not follow Jesus. What does he mean by that? Well, actually, he and a bunch of other smart guys got together and actually spent a year reading, studying, praying, talking, and writing. And he's written a number of great books about what it means to be a disciple, how to lead others in becoming a disciple. And this is kind of like his thing right here. This is where he landed. He said, as I look around, I see a lot of churches, a lot of seats, a lot of pews filled with people who profess a love for God, but their lives aren't showing it. Now, I don't know if you know this, but if you were to go back and study church history, which I kind of love this stuff, I got lots of books for you, you'll find that it was roughly 300 years after Jesus that finally all these different doctrines started getting solidified. So Gnosticism popped up and all these heretics are going about, people are twisting the gospel, and the church got together and all these different uh, uh, gatherings and wrote all these creeds out, well, here's what it means to follow Jesus, and I, you know, I believe in God the Father, the Son of all mighty maker of heaven and earth, and you've heard the song, you've maybe heard the quotes, and anyway, all of these things were created, but they were created hundreds of years later, and then at different seasons in the church's history, they've had to gather together the leadership and do it again, and gather together leadership and do it again, because Satan keeps twisting it, twisting it, twisting it, taking what they've clarified, finding a way to get in there, but what did they do for the first few hundred years? How did they know who was a real disciple or follower of Jesus and who wasn't? There were basically two tests. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Yes. Does your life show that? Can people know that you actually came on board by are you becoming more gentle, more patient, more kind, more generous, more bold, more loving? What is the fruit of a person's life? And that was used those two things together to determine is someone in or is someone out. Are they faking it or are they really doing it? Jesus goes on. He says it this way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says this. Anyone who listens to my teaching and what? Follows it is wise. You know, like a person who builds house on a solid rock. We'll get to that in just a second. Notice what Jesus is saying. It's not enough to hear me. It's not enough to agree with me. I don't know about you. I just got done watching, listening to parts of the Republican National, whatever it is, convention thing. And I love to watch parts of these things. If I watch too much, I want to pull all my hair out. And I don't have much left to pull out. It's going quickly. But as I watch these things, here's what happens. If the person on stage says something you agree with, you cheer. If the person on stage says something you don't agree with, you jeer right? doesn't matter which party it is. If you don't agree with that party, they say something you like, you cheer. They say something you don't like, you get mad at them. Jesus is saying, don't treat me like that. And here's the thing. If you're new at this, maybe I've met a whole bunch of people very new to Kingsway. I just want you to know Jesus is going to offend you big time at some point. Maybe it's weekly in here, but at some point you dig into the word of God, you're going to find God doesn't agree with you. And I think if he could just spend some time with you, you probably could change his mind. That's called sarcasm. The point is, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
The things that he says fly in the face of what I instinctively want in my flesh and in my heart. In my job, when I come across those hard teachings to Jesus, isn't it make Jesus flip his story? It's for me to flip my story. There's a passage in John chapter 6, uh, verse 66. That's always fascinating to me. And John literally reports that Jesus just says the most offensive thing publicly. Here's what he said. You may find it offensive too. Jesus stands up. He says, unless you drink my blood and eat my body, you can't be one with me. So we got to be cannibals, Jesus? And... The disciples at that time, there's more of them at that point. We'll talk about that in a moment. The disciples literally go, okay, we were with you when you were healing people. We were with you when you were doing cool miracles, but this whole eat your body, drink your blood, I'm out. And literally John chapter 6 verse 66 says many of his disciples left that day, and Jesus doesn't lose any sleep. He doesn't say, no, wait, 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 guys, come back here. Let me clarify. Let me tell you what I mean. Instead, he turns to the 12, and he looks right at Peter, and he says, you going to go to? And Peter's baffled. I mean, he doesn't know what to say. He's not like, oh yeah, Jesus, I know what you mean. You're talking about in the Exodus when you led the Israelites into the desert and you fed the manna from heaven as a miracle every day and now you're connecting the dots and you're saying, I am your manna, I am your bread of life, feed on me every day, don't worry about food and physical needs, just feed on me and anybody who trusts me every day for everything they need, they'll have hope in eternity. Oh yeah, Jesus, I get it. No, Peter looks at him and he goes, I don't know where else to go. You're going to come across things that Jesus says that are hard and they don't make sense. And God's going to ask you to do things that are hard and they don't make sense. And Jesus is going to challenge the way you look at the world. And if you want to be a disciple, it means I'm going to go anyway. Here's what it means. It means that You know, when you lose your job and you're crying out to God, I don't understand, God. Have I been unfaithful? And all he does is be silent and say, I'll take care of you. Or when your spouse leaves and they don't give any great answers as to why they're leaving you. And you're crying out to God saying, God, what did I do wrong? And God says, I will protect you. Or when your child leaves, walks away from God, and you hear the father say, I need you to hang on to me. Do not water down my truth to make them feel better about themselves. In each of these situations and all the one that life throws at us, major injury, sickness, death, the point is, will we hang on to the end to everything the Father has told us about himself and everything he calls us to do, no matter the cost? Look at the way Jesus says this. Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise and the wind beats against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. One of my uh, Old Testament professors put a video on Facebook about a year ago. It was amazing. I don't know if it was his or someone else's, but he's standing off to the side. There's a dry riverbed, but you can see where it's kind of been cut out in the past. And all of a sudden, you hear this sound. 
And what's happened is way, way, way upstream, wherever it is, there has been a torrential rain pour, but it's completely arid there. And all of a sudden, you see just a, like a little, little, like a trickle, like a line. And followed by that line is a little bit heavier water. And followed by that is all of a sudden it's six inches, 12 inches, three feet, four feet. Next thing you know, the riverbed is full and it is flooding down. And this is very common in this particular part of the world. It's kind of arid. Things dry up in one season. They come back in the next. And Jesus is telling this story, a story that everybody else would have had this visual image of. And he's saying, if you build your house on me, when the rain pours, when the flood waters rise, if it's built on me, you'll hold firm. But if it's not, if you throw in the towel, if the reality is the foundation is built on your best ideas, your best hopes for the world, what's going to happen is it's going to come wash it all away. Look at the very next verse. Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey, they are foolish. Like a person who builds house on sand. And when the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Let me just say to you, perhaps the most eye-opening and painful thing that I could possibly say right now. Some of you, some of you sitting in this room, this is your story, and your life has fallen apart, and you have a glorious gift right here in front of you. Will you rebuild on Jesus, or will you keep trying to do it your own way? To do it Jesus' way means it doesn't matter if it makes sense. It doesn't matter if I can figure out where you're going. If you say do it, I'm going to do it because that's what a follower does. There's two questions every believer needs to ask. Question number one, God, what are you saying to me? Right now, I would encourage you to even start thinking that. Okay, God, I have no idea where Matt is taking this message yet. Why is he laying this foundation? What are you saying to me? But as you learn to tune into the Holy Spirit, you're going to hear him speak. And here's what I know. How can I know when God is speaking? Because you get this overwhelming sense that God is telling you to do something and you can't seem to let it go. And it seems to honor him. It seems to bring him glory. And it brings goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, patience to this world. It's from him. In fact, I, I put the story on Facebook so I'll give you the short version. Of course, none of my stories are the short version, but it's the short, it's short version I can give. Friday night, no, Thursday night, uh, I borrowed Chris Fowler's truck. I had a bunch of siding in my shed. And so I borrowed Chris Fowler's truck. I put all the siding and like moved it all on my own to the truck, took it to Lowe's, moved it into Lowe's. I get in there, they're like, this is too old. We can't take it back. I was begging and pleading, and they wouldn't take it. So I had to load it all back up in the truck and take it all back out to my house. My shoulders tore up. I've got literally stretch marks and bruises from moving all this stuff. Like, I had people offer to help. It was my own fault. Okay, I'm not blaming anybody. But I was in a bad mood. And I had to go back to Lowe's to pick something up in Chris's truck, which I was hoping to take this and pick it up. So I had to go back, and I was not happy. And I go inside, and I'm talking to the same guy at the, at the customer service, and it's not his fault. He did the best that he could. I was just in a big grumpy face and trying not to dishonor Jesus and how I was acting. And uh, he said, hey, pull your truck up. And I go, and I pull up Chris's truck, and I get out. And as I'm walking into Lowe's, there's two ladies walking in the same time as me, except for they look totally different than me. Their skin is a far darker color than mine. One's older and one's younger. And as they're walking in, my daddy taught me to be a gentleman, so I just stopped and Kind of motion. In my heart, I'm like, rawr, 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 lows, rawr, rawr. I just kind of motioned for them to go. And as they walked in, the older lady, she looked at me. She said, thank you. And I felt God say, ask her how she's doing. 
So I just said, you having a good day, ma'am? And she was turned the other way, getting a cart, and I didn't hear what she said exactly, but she said something about slitting her wrists. And so as she turned back, I said, I'm sorry, did you say? And she said, it's been a slit your wrist kind of day. Well, at this point, I'm standing at the automatic doors as if I'm holding the door for her. Because I'm like, I don't know, I feel like an idiot. I don't know what else to do. Like, let me get the door for you. <laughs> and as she walked by, the spirit clearly said, ask her how you can pray. I said, ma'am, is there anything I can be praying for? And she looked at me, her eyes got wide, her face got stern, and she looked at the younger girl who turns out was her goddaughter. She said, you go wait over there. And she looked at me and said, you come with me. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> what did I do? Like, I don't know if she's mad at God. I don't know what's going on. Am I going to get an earful or a thank you? I don't know. She took me out to that door lock kind of area at Lowe's here in Avon. And about 40 minutes after that, uh, we were praying together. Turns out her life has been brutal. She was the wife of a pastor. And in May, they got a divorce. Long story short, I don't know his side of the story, so it's not my place to tell it anyway. I only know this, she's hurting and she's hurting bad. I never told her where I worked, I never told her what I did. It wasn't important. I asked her if she had a church home and she said yes, that was all I needed to know. She didn't need to come here, she needed Jesus. And so I prayed with her and I encouraged her and she said, I believe the word has a Lord from you for me. And I said, I do. I think, number one, God wants you to know to trust him with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him, he'll make your path straight. And number two, he wants to give you freedom. You need to let go of the bitterness and the anger. The past is the past. And then I prayed for her. And as soon as I finished praying, she looked at me and she said, right before I walked in here, I said, Lord, I just need you to send me somebody to pray with me. And she said, and then I saw your face. And before you walked in the door, I said, there's something about him. And then you said, can I pray for you? What is God telling you to do? And if you don't know, Maybe you need to tune out for a moment all those prayers and all those worries and all those concerns you have about yourself. you got to let go of the fact that you don't think you have what it takes. I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated enough. I don't have enough. God, what about, what about, what about? And you need to take a deep breath and just say, God, how and where do you intend to use me? And then when the Lord speaks, number two, you just say, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do to follow through and to be faithful to all that God is calling me to do? It doesn't matter the sacrifice. It doesn't matter the awkwardness. Let me tell you, it was awkward. And the moment she said, hey, you're coming with me, I thought, oh, man. But I'm so glad I was faithful to God that day. For her, for you, for me. I'm so glad that God didn't let my bad attitude get in the way. I'm so thankful that God is faithful to those who seek him. This, if you would do those two things to the day you die, you'll be able to stand before him with a clean conscience and say, here I am, Lord. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. So let's talk about what would it mean if I were to give you some guidelines. To what is God saying to me? What am I going to do about it? Let me just give you some principles because the Bible doesn't just leave you hanging like, I don't know. I don't know. Was that God's voice? Was that God's voice? Let me give you some guidelines, just some principles that will help you. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 17, in the, one of the best passages in the whole Bible, I quote it all the time. He says, this is my command, love each other. 
This whole passage comes on the heels. Go read the first 16 verses. It starts out with Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Anybody who remains in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Jesus is saying, if you stay connected to me, great things are gonna happen in your life. If you disconnect from me, great things are not going to happen in your life. Stay connected to me because I am where the power, I am where the authority comes from. Hang on to me, daily bread. That was the whole thing in John 6. Jesus was beating that drum. You don't just need food and drink. What you need more than food or drink is Jesus every day. He goes on, John, the same guy who wrote this, and he writes in 1 John. He gives you a little more clarity. He says this. We know what real love is, 1 John 3, 16, because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give our lives up for our brothers and sisters. This is talking about other believers, not necessarily our literal blood brothers and sisters. That may apply. It may not. This is, by the way, fascinating. The way 1 John 3.16 mirrors John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I love when I find little nuggets like that. And John here is letting us know, you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Here it is. Love others in the faith. Love them. Love them with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you love them? You actually surrender what God has given to you for their benefit. Now, the sinful side of us goes, but if I do that, what about me? And Jesus goes, but imagine a community of people where everybody's doing that. Imagine 2,000 people coming together and everybody saying, I'll give up my time, my talents, my treasure for your benefit and for the benefit of God's kingdom. Now, if 99% of the people don't do it and one does, and that 1% would probably start to feel pretty abused and used. But if 100% of the people do it, nobody gets used and abused because everybody's getting their needs met all the time. Look at the very next thing that it says here. Uh, jump down two verses, verse 18. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. This is fascinating because there's this dance in the faith. It's the dance between works and salvation. And anytime we get across these passages, there's a group of people, and maybe some of you are sitting here, that go, I gotta be really careful because it sounds like, it sounds like we're teaching or saying that I'm saved by what I do. No, no, no. See, it's just that in the New Testament, you can't separate the two. You literally can't separate the two. James goes so far as to say, you say you're saved, I'll show you I'm saved by what I do. And that's exactly what John's trying to get to here. Nowhere did Jesus have a classroom of a group of people who say, yes, Jesus, I agree with you. Jesus only has a classroom of people who go and do what he did. Okay, hard, offensive question. Does your life today reflect the life of Jesus to other people? Are you growing in gentleness and faithfulness and kindness and love? Is that measurable by how you live, by the things you're doing for God in his power? John goes on. It's fascinating. You should read it sometime here in 1 John 3. He goes on to talk about feelings, you know. Nothing more than feelings. And he basically says this in a nutshell. He says, you know, some of you feel bad. And the reality is you feel bad because you have nothing to back up your faith. But if you have fruit, 
actions that back up your faith, then don't worry about how you feel because actions trump feelings. And so what John is getting to, it's fascinating. Go read it. He's not saying you're saved by the things you do. He's saying, you know, you're going to be sick. You're going to be tired. You're going to be worn out. You're going to feel under-resourced. The floods are going to come. And when they come, if you don't have actions to look at your life and say, do I love God? You're going to question whether you believe in God at all, whether there's any hope of salvation. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Remember that time you sinned and wondered if God was done with you? And what John is saying is when you have fruit of love in your life, it doesn't save you. You can look at it and say, you know what? Yeah, I'm off today. But I know by my fruit that I love God. And so we could stand confidently and boldly before him on the last day, not claiming all these great things we've done, just standing before him saying, I know I loved you the best that I knew how to do. And he'll say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Let me put you in charge of many things. That's a glorious statement to hear. I love the way Bill Hull says this again, though. Referring back to John 15, he says this. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. That's John 15, 5. That's exactly what it says. But, John, Bill Hull goes on, he says, but if you do nothing, it will be without him. Now, let that one sink in, because that's a great little play on words. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. But if you do nothing, it will be also without him. It cannot be both. Yes, Jesus, I'm connected to you. I'm not going to do anything with it, but I'm connected to you. No, 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 no. Both are extreme opposites that lead to a life far from God. So Jesus says it this way, Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. He says, a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So Every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yikes. Get what Jesus is saying. Now, this is in the context of false teachers and other things, but these false teachers are basically disconnected from Jesus. They have either works and no faith or faith and no works. And he's saying, we don't have a choice here. It's faith and works combined together. Now, this is probably an analogy to hell, although it's not super, super clear in the text, but part of what he's saying, there's no difference today, I don't know if this is a word, but an orchardist, somebody runs an orchard, an orchardary, an orchardary, I don't know what you call that thing. Thank you, somebody's saying it, I'm an idiot. Anyway, a person who runs an orchard, if you have a bunch of trees and you have one that is dying and it's producing bad fruit, you're not gonna leave it there for two reasons. Number one, it's taking up space. And the sooner you cut it down and plant something healthy in its place, the sooner it'll produce more fruit for you. And number two, if you're not careful, the dead poisonous fruit will spread to the other trees. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, watch your heart, watch your lives, because your lives will display what you believe. Your lives will show whose team you're on. And then, live it. And let the fruit be used to bless, to feed, to nourish, to encourage, to challenge, to build up every passerby. Look at the rest of what Jesus says here. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their what? Actions. 
Now, let me give a word of caution that's not in this text, but it's in plenty of other biblical places. Places, Ephesians, I believe, is chapter 3, 4, and 5. Also, most of the book of James. We have to be so careful. Believers, we are not called to just go around and, and judge everybody. Okay, this is where so many Christians drive me nuts, and I am guilty. Our job is not to look at everybody and say, well, they're not lining up because they're not as holy as Mother Teresa, you know, whatever, whoever the person is in your life that you think is so amazing. But what we are to do is to look at other believers. Paul makes this crystal clear and and help assess their lives and say, brother or sister, I think you're caught up in this. I think you're off here. I think you need to see this. We take scripture to them. Look, I love you. I want to help you. It's not we're standing back gossiping, slandering, or talking about. No, no, no. We go directly to them and say, I think you're off on something. I need you to see it. So if there's somebody in your life, you're like, man, this message is for them. First thing is you probably ought to look and see if the message is for you. And then secondly, you ought to approach them in love and humility with Scripture and say, man, after what Matt said, I feel like I need to talk to you because I don't feel like your life is living up to the call of the gospel. And here's why. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. So Dallas Willard says this. I love this. Not only have we been saved by grace, we've been paralyzed by it. I love that phrase because basically what he's trying to get to is, you know, we all love this passage I read a couple weeks ago. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. No work of man can do this. And he says, that's all true, except that what we say is, yes, saved by grace. Don't have to get right with God. Don't have to change anything in my life. Saved by grace. Saved by grace. We become paralyzed by grace. Jesus intended to send you out. How do I know? One chapter later in the book of Luke. So Luke chapter 10 now, verse 1. One chapter later, we've gone from 12 disciples to 72 disciples. Take a look. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples, and he sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. So a few things. Number one, we go from 12 to 72 in a chapter. Have you ever noticed whenever you see the disciples listed by numbers in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, it's always divisible by 12? In case you forget what divisible means. So 12 times 6 is 72. In another place, we see there's 120. 12 times 8 is 120. Some of you are not paying attention. I've lost you completely. There's no math in Bible college, but it's really 12 times 10. For those of you who are like, what? Why is that important? Look, it may be nothing at all. I don't want to make more of it than it is, but I think it's very fascinating. It's divisible by 12, because here's what I think. I think Jesus multiplied himself into the 12. I think he called the 12 to multiply themselves into the 72, and it kept going out into the 120. He kept breaking them down into groups where you had a leader, pouring into leaders, pouring into leaders, pouring into leaders, pouring into leaders. Jesus multiplied himself by training somebody else around him to do what he did, to say what he said, to know what he knew. Man, who is teaching and training you and who are you teaching and training? I surround myself with godly men and women that will speak into my life who will call me out whether I like it or not. I don't know everything. Shh, don't tell my wife. I don't know everything there is to know about everything under the sun. But God has raised up some really wise men and women who know more than me, and they speak into my life. And so I try to keep multiplying myself into the lives of others. Who do you have who's pouring into you, and who do you have that you're pouring into? Because if your answer is no one, I just 
beg you to spend some time with God and ask if that's his will for you. Look at what he says next to this group. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you. Don't take a traveler's bag. Don't take any extra pair of sandals. Don't even take your iPhone. That was, you have to know Greek. You'd see it. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Why these two things? Again, you don't need anything else than what I gave you. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. So act like it. And there's an urgency. Stop waiting to learn more. So many of you are stressed out, but I don't know enough. We're a year into his mentoring them. There's points where they literally can't drive out demons. I'll just punch the TV. They literally can't drive out demons. And they all gather together. It's right after the transfiguration. We tried, Jesus. It didn't work. You mean the disciples failed? Yes. And then Jesus looked at them and he said, oh, this kind you can only cast out by lots of prayer. What did he do? He took their failure. He turned it into a lesson. If what's keeping you from engaging in the kingdom of God is failure, then you're missing your greatest opportunity to grow. Look at what happens next, verse 16 and 17. Then he said to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me, and anyone who rejects you is rejecting me, and anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. In other words, you are fully empowered and equipped as my representatives. They accept you, they accept God. They don't accept you, they're ignoring God. That is authority. Then, he, then we find out, I love this, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Translation, it worked. You, you can't believe it. And she's like, yes, I can. Because I gave you power and authority. Church, when you come to Jesus and you go into the waters of baptism, you are going all in. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the death of the old you, the resurrection of the new you. And what you're saying in that moment is, I'm not just agreeing to a set of principles. I'm giving you my life for eternal life. It's the trade of a lifetime. But with it comes a lifestyle. Here's my ask. What is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? Maybe some of you, God is calling you to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. You know he's telling you to love or to serve. Maybe just go to them and say, how can I pray for you? And it's bold and it's terrifying. It might cost you the friendship. They might make fun of you. They might gather others at work to make fun of you. And he's saying, I need you to do this. I need you to do this. If they accept you, they accept me. If they reject you, they reject me. Maybe for some of you, we've had over 400 people sign up the last two weeks to serve in some way or another. Praise, yeah. Praise God. The problem is we need close to 600. True story. And the majority of those that we need are actually in kids' ministries. Man, I don't know about you, but if you just love babies, I love babies. It's just that I'm right here. If you love babies, especially it's one of our biggest needs, we just go out there and say, I just want to rock a baby. Look, I'll come down and change the diapers, okay? Okay, that probably won't happen. But maybe God's calling you. Maybe God's calling you to say, I'm going to give an extra hour and a half of my life on a Sunday morning so that other people could sit in and worship and hear Jesus, so that people who are coming to Kingsway who don't know God can have a moment to meet him and not be hindered and distracted by their kids' safety, and then I'll also pour love into those kids. I need you to pray about this and consider it. I need you to, because as a body, 
as a body, we need more than 99% watching and 1% doing. Here's what I want to do. I want to close us in prayer. And uh, when I'm done praying, the worship team is going to come out. And I want you to have those two questions in your heart as you're singing. God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do with it? And when we're done, you can go right out those doors and you can find a table set up just for you, just for you, to ask questions, get answers, or sign up to serve. Let's all stand and I'll pray. Father in heaven, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your patience with us. But we also thank you, God, more importantly, for the Holy Spirit you've given us, who is at work in us, doing amazing things through us. So, God, would you change the way we look at this world? You are doing amazingly awesome, bold things. God, help us to get on board with what you're doing in the world and to do it too. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.